0: He was certainly the best footballer Europe has ever produced. He was a great player at a time when Dutch football was going through a great period and deserves to be considered as one of the all-time greats. He was an absolute genius. He just played the game at his own pace which I think at that level is fantastic. Few players have been able to exact, both physically and mentally, such mesmeric control on a match from one penalty area to another. Johan Cruyff painted the chapel and Barcelona coaches since have merely restored or improved it. Hello and welcome to the 11th episode of the Unsigned Manager podcast. I'm just happy to be past the first 10. I want to keep this rolling for a while. I haven't missed a week yet and the next big milestone is 25 that's what i'm working towards anyway each week i go through football's biggest stories events teams and headlines in both the past and the present i just want to break it down make it a bit easier to understand explain exactly what was happening behind all the stories in this week's episode i want to go through some of the greatest one of football's greatest ever players who was an integral part of one of the greatest ever teams which was coached by one of the greatest ever managers. Today we cover Johan Cruyff and Holland's 1974 World Cup team. Johan Cruyff is one of those icons of the game that you've heard about and it doesn't really matter how old you are, you know his name. Cruyff is probably the strongest case of saying he's football's best ever mind and his influence on the sport is pretty much unparalleled. This is a three-time Ballon d'Or winner who every player of his era said he was the greatest who then goes on to be an elite manager building a Barcelona dream team and instilling a football philosophy in that legendary club which they are still trying to implement to this day and then ending his footballing life by nurturing the minds of the game some of the smartest people to ever be involved in football so Alex Ferguson Arsene Wenger, Xavi, Messi, Philip Lahm even Pep Guardiola credit some of their success to the wisdom shown by Johan Cruyff. And if all that wasn't enough, that academy, La Masia, the one that produced what might be the greatest ever club side and probably the best player of all time in Messi, that was Cruyff's idea. Actually Spain's World Cup winning team of 2010 had 7 Barcelona players in it and 6 of those players graduated from La Masia. Cruyff had such an impact on the game that after he retired. Anyone my age probably has anecdotal knowledge of his playing career and that's, this is a guy that retired in the 80s and people still know about him now but not even just know about him, know how he played. He's just one of those guys, when Cruyff is talked about as a player he's knocking on that, that Pele, that Maradona and that Eusebio is the greatest before Messi and Ronaldo came along. He's at that level. But like we always do on this podcast, like I always like doing, let's go back, let's set the scene Let's look at the journey that football's most influential man went on So Johan Grof was born in April of 1947, about 5 minutes from Ajax's stadium He grew up just around there and when he was born, Dutch football was still not professional They weren't professional in 1954 but it wasn't, wasn't a smooth transition players are still treating football like a side job or a hobby, something to get them by and that they enjoy while doing their everyday jobs. Early tragedy hit when his football loving father died when Johan was 12, with Cruyff dedicating his playing career to his father and apparently never really been able to shake the shadow of his father off him as he grew up. He joined Ajax's youth team on his 10th birthday and he didn't even need a trial because A youth team coach recognised his talent playing in the street and thought he was good enough to be in the academy already, no trial. He progresses throughout the academy over his years and makes his first team debut at 17, scoring on his debut. He said that he wasn't nervous making his debut for Ajax because his mother had worked at the club and in between school he went and spent so much time there and he'd been in the academy for so long, he felt like family there. And the lack of pressure must have been must have been great for a 17-year-old to have. Imagine being at that level playing for your hometown team, the team you've supported and lived so close to all your life. And it's easy because everyone knows you. You're not stressing about it. Ajax actually had a horrible season. They finished their lowest ever position in Eredivisie history and 13th. But that type of failure wouldn't actually happen again under Johan. The next year, he became a first-team regular in the second season. So this is a 65-66 season. He scored 25 goals in 23 games as an 18-year-old as Ajax won the league. And there are 100,000 Cruyff highlights and compilations on the internet. So if you don't know, go and get to know. Go and check them out. And there's one goal in... In, all the, it's in every compilation there is one goal that stands out to me every time I see it I must have seen this goal like a hundred times so I've left the link to a video in the description with the timestamp but there's a big clearance the ball's gone far and right up into the sky and Kroos like touched tight on the left wing with his back to goal there's a defender behind him the touch he makes into space on the half spin is insane it's if any player did that today, oh guys, everyone on Twitter will be making. We that video will get posted and retweeted a thousand times, compilations times ten, everything. The finish is a combination of a good strike and poor keeping. But uh, when you when you just think about the creativity and the imagination and the technique, oh, it's insane. Like I said, the the timestamp will be in the description, so go and make sure to watch the video. But watch on mute because it has that classic YouTube compilation dubstep behind it which always makes me want to turn off the video, I hate when YouTube people do that Anyway, next season, 66-67, Ajax win the league and the cup double Cruyff is top scorer in the league with 33 goals and he's Dutch player of the year Pretty much the same thing happens the next year 67-68, Ajax win the league again Cruyff scores 27-33 and Ajax have just won 3 titles in a row So from the year he became a regular starter in the team, they've gone from having the worst professional league finish in history to becoming a truly dominant Dutch side, winning three league titles in a row and picking up a few cups on the way. In the 68-69 season, Dutch player of the year, Champions League finalist but they lose to AC Milan. But then of course, classic Ajax bounce back to win the league again the following season finishing 5 points ahead of their rivals Feyenoord and only suffering 1 defeat all season. This type of dominance that Cruyff is showing at this age isn't really done by many players in football history, they don't go on this type of run as the best player in the team at a young age who is taking control of a league. Cruyff won 4 league titles in 5 years 2 domestic trophies in 5 years League top scorer once and Dutch player of the year once all before 23 through my research I try my hardest to find any players of good modern football standards who have come close to this level of productivity at this age I can't I I, I can't trust anything before Grove really I can't lie yeah Pelé, respect to you and everything but I cannot go back and look at those those results, I don't know how much of them I can trust the only four players that i found to come closest to this level are all obvious generational talents Cristiano Ronaldo Lionel Messi, Kylian Mbappe and Wayne Rooney are the four players whose level of achievement comes close to before 23 and it's hard to compare areas I understand that but if your name is coming up in conversations with those guys, you are doing something right So now, at the point we're at the start of the 1970s, and Cruyff's stardom is rising. Ajax have just won the Champions League for the first time in club's history, beating Panathinaikos 2 0 in London. And this was the year that everything ended perfectly for Cruyff. He signed a big seven year contract to Ajax, big money, big wages. He won Dutch Player of the Year again and won his first Ballon d'Or. At this point he's the best player in the world No discussion But then it actually goes up from there 71-72 season Ajax win their second successive Champions League That's two in a row Beating Inter Milan 2-0 in the final And then they made it a hat-trick a year after that Beating Juventus 1-0 in the final To win three Champions Leagues in a row And that was a record that stood what? Almost 40-45 years Something close to that Until Real Madrid did it, no team ever had done three Champions Leagues in a row. That was how good this Ajax team was. In the Inter Milan final, the second Champions League win is a big moment in football history. Inter Milan at the time, like most Italian teams, implemented the Catenaccio style of defending. So, really trying to break down and simplify a really big, uh, complex topic. Catenaccio is essentially defending counter, with a lot more other things happening, but really it's defending counter, it's like parking the bus but when you've won the ball you want to counter attack as quickly as possible and surprise your position the best Catanaccio version of a goal would be soaking up pressure, soaking up pressure defending counter, go up the other end, score and repeat that's all you're looking for however the difference between this style and parking the bus is that Catanaccio teams play with a sweeper so imagine a central midfield player has been taken out of the midfield and put behind the defence. That way any loose balls, any over the top passes, anything that the defenders don't pick up, that sweeper picks up behind them. So you know in the mid 2010s when Manuel Neuer is the best keeper in the world and he's playing sweeper keeper for Bayern and anything Jerome Boateng and Mats Hummels can't get, he is picking up loose balls behind them and knocking the ball longer forward. That's exactly what used to be someone's whole job. So like uh, Lothar Mateus or Franz Beckenbauer, they were sweepers. They were central midfield players or centre backs who were good enough on the ball to play behind the defence to clean up. It's a it's a hard defensive style to break down because there's almost no gaps in the pitch and you can't even result in the final football um the final excuse, the final way to score of going long and going over the top because there's someone there for that so now in this final big big final for football history Inter Milan versus Ajax the rigid defensive Casinaccio came up against fluent modern attacking uh... innovative attacking style of total football now total football again is a really big complex football ideology but its foundational piece is really simple the idea is it doesn't really matter what position a player is. All that matters on a football pitch is that someone is occupying every position at each time, no matter who it is. So anyone can be a defender, anyone can be a midfielder, anyone can be a striker. The only thing that matters is that someone is filling one of those positions at all times. The formational structure has to stay maintained, but other than that, you can go wherever you want. So if you're a striker but you decide that you're going to be most effective at left back, go and do that. Just make sure someone's filling in for you up front. Likewise, if you're a centre back and want to drive forward the ball and get wide, just make sure a winger or a central midfield player is filling in for you at centre back. So it's a really fluid and aggressive system because it means you can press relentlessly, knowing someone's always covering for you. I can go, as a right winger, I can go and chase someone completely to the other side of the pitch and that's fine by everyone, as long as someone fills in for me and the whole team shuffles across the players in this system need to be so tactically and technically adaptable because if not, the system kind of fails if I'm a a really right-sided defender, really right-sided, no left foot and my left back goes wandering if I'm not capable of covering and defending in the left back position, I'm leaving the whole team exposed. So it's one of those things that kind of like the top top level players could play in a system like this. And again, I I must mention this game at all times, probably every single day. 2011 Champions League final, Barcelona versus Manchester United at Wembley. This is the system Barcelona putting in. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where Pedro is or David Villa is or Xavi or Iniesta or Messi someone's always covering one of the attacking positions at all times Manchester United have no idea who's going to be where and it's absolutely freaking them out and especially the fact that Messi's playing a bit more withdrawn Rio and Vidic have no idea who to defend but this is where that system comes from so in this tactical clash, Inter versus Ajax the more attractive total football of Ajax came out on top and it was endearing to football fans and it ended the use of Catinaccio. apparently the re- the game was so bad, it was so one-sided that after the match Italian newspapers reported that Catinaccio should be retired and that this clearly better, more enjoyable tactic should be used by all Italian teams and it probably didn't help that Crow scored twice and pretty much dominated the game and one man in the match Ajax right at the top of the world at this point And then again after that, into Milan win, they make it a treble and they beat Juventus in the following final. But then one of the the strange things that happens in football all the time, I really don't understand it. People love to mess up a good thing. Love it. When things are going well for a football team, there's always someone who kind of just wants to throw a little bit of grit in the engine for no reason. Ajax have just won multiple Champions Leagues in a row multiple Eredivisie titles at this point Krofi is the best player in the world and then Ajax go ahead and sell him I didn't understand the logic and I tried for ages to work out why he would sell the best player in the world and he was only 26 at the time it's not like he's some old man and he's not he's at the peak of his powers I mean from Ajax's side why sell the world's best player when the rule in football, the golden rule everyone should follow if you run a football team, please listen to me Never ever sell your best player Unless they're old enough to that you can start thinking of them having a drop off Other than that No team has ever got better after selling their best player When he was at the peak of his powers The peak of his powers So not like Chelsea selling Eden Hazard Just when it was just about to go downhill not like Arsenal selling uh, Thierry Henry to Barcelona when his age was coming in and the Arsenal team wasn't really going to do well with the old Henry, I'm talking about when players at his prime, why sell him? It took a good chunk of research for me to work out the real reason why Ajax sold him. So essentially there's two big reasons, Cruyff dot Ajax had fat cat syndrome and fat cat syndrome is when a person who's not used to success receives loads of success and they lose their humbleness and all the grind and all the effort and all the work that got them to the top they think that they're the man now or they're that guy now and they stop working hard and if you've never heard about Jan Croy's personality let me let you know this guy was stubborn and hard-headed and there would have been hell to pay if he didn't think everyone in that team was working as hard as he was if you've ever seen The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan doc on Netflix Imagine Michael Jordan was white and skinny and Dutch. That is exactly what Jan Cruyff is. So much so that the legendary Dutch manager and Ajax manager and one of Cruyff's father's figures, Renus Mikkels, one of the greatest managers of all time, he hired two psychologists to evaluate Cruyff because Mikkels could not understand his behaviour and his personality. Anyway, Cruyff thought the entire club was getting essentially too big for their boots and Barcelona swooped in to pick up the world's best player and since his former manager Mickles had already gone to Barca swapping Amsterdam for Catalonia Croft thought he was ready to make the same jump and join his old manager but then more research worked out that what actually happened is Ajax's players for the next season had a secret vote to see who they wanted to be their captain and Pete Kaiser won the vote ahead of Johan Cruyff and Cruyff was so annoyed about it that he decided he didn't want to be at the club anymore that's really what happened he left a situation where he was the best player in the world because of jealousy and spite and due to his forceful football personality he knew he would never ever be able to stay harmoniously so he left Barcelona signed Cruyff for about 6 million guilders which was Netherlands old currency so it's about 2 million dollars at the time so in 1973 2 million dollars is equivalent to about 8.8 million pounds today so for a league that was barely professional for at least 15 years barely professional growth is now breaking world transfer records going for so much money that the Catalonian government had to make a special allowance to let the sale go through. 8.8 million pounds in 73 is an insane amount of money and Franz Beckenbauer was even quoted saying that when players like Gareth Bale and Cristiano Ronaldo are going for 100 million euros Cruyff would be going for the billions and I definitely want to cover the 74 World Cup team and i got a section on uh, the Euros and mainly England at the end of this episode so I want to blitz through the rest of the Cruyff section I will definitely go back in more depth another day he'd be a fascinating 10 episode doc in my opinion so... Actually, I probably might make that one day. Alright, let's speed through it. Cruyff is in Barcelona right now. He has just helped them win their first league title in 14 years and they beat Real Madrid 5-0 at the Bernabeu in his first season. Arsene Wenger said that Cruyff had a tactical awareness which was almost unparalleled and that because he read the game so well, he could pretty much make any team win. He won his third Ballon d'Or in 74 He won his second uh, in 73 The year that Ajax won the Champions League He won his third in 74 And stayed in Barcelona altogether for about 5 seasons Before a long drawn out into his career That had bad investments in it Signing for arch rivals Arguing with everyone Falling out with the Dutch FA All types of madness And that's all before he became a manager And then football's most influential man a ten-episode doc on your encore would be amazing. I'm definitely gonna look into that. It's really worth doing the research if you're interested. The rest of his career is as, ten times more interesting than the first. And I've been racking my brain to think of someone who is to think of someone who had so much impact on one sport the level he did, and I can't, I can't think of someone who did enough for a sport throughout multiple generations and even after his death. Alright so Now we move on to Holland 74 team And sorry for rushing through everything But I want to take a look at this team And I don't know what made me I think it must have been England's performance at the Euros That made me think of The Holland 74 team And One of the teams that I'm sure if you're my age 100% you've watched Football Greatest And if you haven't Football's Greatest is like a, a series on, Used to be on Sky Sports was basically told you about the greatest players and greatest teams of all time and the episode they did on the 74 Dutch national team was probably my favourite I've seen that a lot of times and I think it must have been English performance that made me think of this team but they are probably like the most bittersweet team in football history they're knocking on that door they're around that I can't pull everything off the top of my head but they're a great story that ended badly so in really important context important context you may remember from school history if you weren't doing dumb stuff like getting sent out or talking to girls or whatever Germany and Holland is football's most hated rivalry and they've got such a strong hatred for each other because Germany's five year occupation of the Netherlands in the war caused the death of 250,000 Dutchmen and ruined the country so whenever they go up against each other There's always extreme passion and pride on the line for both sides. And then Germany were reigning European champions going into this World Cup, and Holland probably being the best team in the world, or at least having the best players, they were prepared for a slugfest. So in that time period we're talking about before Cruyff, before his Ajax debut, Dutch football was poor, it was slow, unrefined, really ordinary. You can see a big change in the football style BC and AC before Cruyff and after Cruyff. The Netherlands fully adapted to that total football style that Ajax had mastered, using it to tactically outmaneuver everyone they came up against and they blazed their way to the the 74 World Cup Final. Using the total football style was possible for the national team for two main reasons number one is Cruyff would have lost the plot if he felt that the national team wasn't being aggressive enough or proactive and a thing I always believe in when coaching when playing when watching football you should always try and play in the play style which allows your best players to get the most from their game you can't always find top level like magician players there aren't many of them there's a reason that there aren't many of them because most people aren't like that so you try and suit their playstyle and you fit everyone else around them and then B a stroke of genius on the part of the Dutch FA they struck a deal with Barcelona to sign Renus Mikkels for the tournament so he managed the national team they got Kroos number one manager back the the guy who had helped pioneer total football, the master and the apprentice they're back together and if anyone was going to lead this Dutch national team to success, it would be Ruud Mikkels. With Mikkels at the helm and Cruyff on the pitch, the national team couldn't have been in a better position to win a big, big trophy. They had arguably two of the greatest to do it in the same team at the same time, both essentially managing the team, they were ready to go. The 74 World Cup was pretty much set up the same way that Old Champions League was, so Rather than a knockout stage, there's two sets of group stages. So just like normal, uh, teams are put in a group stage before the tournament and the top two teams go through. They then go through to a second set of group stages where everything is like repotted. So then the second set of group stages come out and whoever finishes top of the two groups, there's two different groups, whoever finishes top gets to the final. Alright, so a little bit about the squad. The Holland team was mostly made up of the three-time European Cup-winning Ajax team, as well as starlets from Feyenoord and other big Eredivisie teams. So it's easy to think that Cruyff was the only top-level player in his team and that he's carrying the team. But no, this squad is full of, at the time, world-class players who could more than hold their own at this level. You might have heard of a few of them. You might not have because it was a while ago. But these lot are levelled. Johnny Rep. Pete Kaiser, Johan Naiskins, Ari Hahn, Rude Kroll. This was a star studded team. Renis Mickels had properly integrated total football into this squad, and there wasn't any better example than the centre backs. Mickels had put Ari Hahn and Ray Bergen at centre back, even though Hahn was a central midfield player and Rebergen was a right back. He valued technical and tactical flexibility over their natural positions and thought that these two players would be best suited to play centre-back, rather than the centre-backs he had available. Similarly, Mickles made sure to put an aggressive sweeper-keeper in goal, to make sure that the ball got up the pitch as fast as possible, and that being proactive was the main aim of this team, so anywhere he could move the ball forward with pace, that was the aim. Cruyff and Mickels also worked out a deal that Cruyff would be the extension of Mickels on the pitch and he had the license to change the formation and change positions if he saw something was going wrong in game and since his tactical eye was one of the best of all time and is one of one everyone trusted him to make those decisions on the pitch The run that the Dutch went through to progress through the tournament was worthy of a champion in the first game they lined up against Uruguay and the game ended in an embarrassment for Uruguay, they were utterly outclassed by the Dutch. Kruij's movement was the trigger for the rest of the team, they needed to know where to go based on where he was taking up positions. And having a mobile backline meant that the offside trap was a big possibility and it's something that Holland used regularly. This continued for the rest of the first group days, this kind of Holland batter everyone system. They beat Bulgaria pretty bad and were held to a nil nil draw against Sweden but that's the game, you know when you see that clip of the Cruyff turn and Cruyff's on the left wing and it's like the first legit time that everyone sees it this is that game but it was all good, they're undefeated, they got through and they're in the second group stage and this is where Holland turn it on they run over Argentina in their first game beating them 4-0, Cruyff scores twice and the Netherlands are ruthless and this team keeps going until the next game against East Germany. They beat the East Germans pretty handily, not too difficult, so they essentially set up a World Cup semi-final against Brazil. And this is a game that's turned into football folklore, one of the dirtiest games ever. The Netherlands versus Brazil is a violent game which actually annoyingly kind of masks the brilliance of some of the on-pitch talent. Any game that's got Rivelino, Jarzinho, naskins and Cruyff on at the same time shouldn't be remembered for horrendous tackling and it was, there could have been about 10 red cards if they, if that game played today everyone be, the game would have got suspended but in the end the Dutch ran out 2-0 winners booking their place in the World Cup final against arch rivals West Germany and Germany's star player Franz Beckenbauer like I said earlier the Germans were reigning European champions and Holland had a chance to say they were the best team in the world all the neutral football fans were pulling for the Dutch some because of Germany's world war atrocities and some because of their attacking fluid elegant style this creative and aggressive method that they had really endeared themselves to fans and Cruyff wasn't looking to let anyone down Oh, key point forgot to mention this World Cup is held in Germany So, Cruyff's legendary Dutch side has a chance to beat the Germans in Germany and be crowned world champions on their patch. But, like I'm sure you can guess, and in football, like in life, sometimes things just don't go as you want. In this game, the Dutch started well. They opened the game on the front foot. Cruyff was meant to be the striker in this team, but... In the first two minutes, he personifies total football. As he receives the ball at centre-back, drives it all the way up the pitch before being brought down by Uli Hoeneß and earning a penalty. And this was so early in the game, the Germans hadn't even touched the ball yet. And the Dutch had a penalty. You know, and Neskin's blast, the ball passed the keeper, putting the Dutch 1-0 up inside two minutes, which eerily sounds like the Euros final we just saw. And then what came after this is kind of an embarrassment to the Dutch and you get the feeling they won't ever really get over this. Going up early sometimes in games is bad for you because you feel like you have the game wrapped, especially in a big game where you want to protect anything you have. Going up early means you want to wrap up the game ASAP and protect it. The Dutch was so excited at being up against the Germans. That they kind of lost their heads, and they started playing really arrogantly, and not like in a in a fun, confident, brilliant kind of arrogance. Not nah, like the cocky, awkward, humiliating way for them. They basically started having a laugh, thinking that they would walk the game, and leave a similar scar on Germany that the war had left on them. And it's hard to explain how much they hated each other, because modern times like ours don't really have this level of conflict in like a world war apart from Israel and Palestine but even that is more of a contained situation than a world war is so I don't think we can understand how much they hate each other but a Dutch center midfielder really tried to sum this up well Van Hanjem said that his German hatred ran deep explaining that quote I don't like Germans every time I played against German players I had a problem because of the war he went on to say that I don't give a damn about the score, 1-0 was enough, as long as we could humiliate them. I hate them, they murdered my family, my brother, my father and several family members. Every time I faced Germany, I was angst filled and it wasn't even like it was one sided beef that it was all by the Dutch, the Germans didn't like them either. Karl Heinz Rummenigge said that, the pressure was tremendous, the popular press was blowing up the old rivalry. We knew that on the pitch the Dutch were ready and waiting for us. I think it's a true shame and pity that they regard football as an outlet for their hatred from the Second World War. But with a tough attitude, grit and determination, Germany grew into the game. In the 25th minute they won a penalty after a poorly judged tackle from a Dutch defender, which left back Paul Brighton or stroked home to bring it back level. So right now it's 1-1 in the 25th The Dutch have basically been taking the Mick for the past 20 minutes and now the Germans are growing into the game and it's getting harder and harder to stop the flow of Germany's attack and then in the 43rd minute Germany go ahead after Muller spins and finishes rolling the ball into the bottom corner putting Germany up 2-1 just before the half and the Dutch must have been sick because Imagine spending so much time messing around, doing keep you up, He's putting, running the ball in circles trying to be as annoying as possible and now you're 2-1 down at half time and then to be honest the rest of the game was just like any normal football when you're playing against a better team like the Germans were and you're protecting a lead, you sit off deep and you stay compact that's exactly what Germany did the Netherlands huffed and puffed but they couldn't knock down the German defence embarrassingly losing to an arch-rival they were heavily favoured to beat because they couldn't keep their cool Cruyff won player of the tournament at the 74 World Cup but it wasn't enough of a prize to soothe the hurt they had from losing to the Germans but then in that that good way that football can do kind of changes the legacy of teams sometimes no matter what happens in the result When was the last time anyone brought up the Germany 74 World Cup winning team? Maybe if you're German, (laughs) but other than that, no one else cares about that team. They won the World Cup but they never remembered because their style was boring, they weren't innovating and essentially, they weren't pushing the game forward as much as they could do. But the Dutch team is constantly remembered as one of the greatest sides and you see their influence 50 years later in Barcelona and Manchester City and Arsenal the fact that they couldn't keep it together in the final almost makes them more endearing Because an average person can relate to that To messing up on a big stage when you should have kept it together but your emotions got the best of you They were pushing the game forward They were trying to be trying to be as exciting and creative And playing the most attractive style and If you were making a list of the greatest players to play The greatest club sides and the greatest national teams The mid-70s Dutch are littered throughout all those lists And they'll forever be remembered as the pioneers Into modern football They push the game further And I think that's the That's what you're looking for from teams Sometimes, yeah, don't get me wrong We all love ball success You want to win, you want to win trophies That's what you're there for But sometimes as fans Or people who aren't playing You want to see yourself pushing the game forward You want to see people Pushing the envelope as far as they can do that is a better legacy sometimes than winning and that's what the Dutch have and that's why Cruyff will always be remembered as the pioneer the guy who pushed the game further Okay, so the last thing I want to cover in this episode is the wrap up of the Euros and England's performance and just everything that happened Um, quick things I know this is dragging on so I'm going to go through this super quick I'm not going to spend too long on it Uh, In the end, I think poor final performance from England. I think they didn't show a good enough account of themselves for everything they did throughout the tournament. I'm not sure if I'm saying that because of the result. I'm not sure if I would say that if England had won the game 1-0. But because they lost the game, it doesn't feel like they gave a good enough account of themselves, if you get me. The whole tournament, right up until extra time, I thought Southgate was phenomenal. And I think it must be such a pain To make decisions And feel like everyone thinks you've got it wrong Even though you know what you're talking about So the fact that he got it right All the way up until extra time Amazing, but I think extra time is where he fumbled the back I think Sancho and Rashford Can't come on Just for penalties I don't like the the idea of Putting people on just for specialist things I feel like I feel like if you're going to do that Give them the whole half an hour I would have put them on at full time let them be warm let them get at Chiellini and Bonucci go and play Rashford as a 9 let Kane sit off and play in a 10 whatever Rashford go and run right at him because he won't catch you Anyway, anyway I think putting them on as substitutes was tough because well late in the game as substitutes was tough because Sandro's first kick honestly might have been his pen and for a guy that's been sitting down not playing almost the entire tournament I can't imagine the pressure now like okay, go and and score this and you might win us a tournament. I wouldn't have taken off Henderson. I was saying at the time, I didn't think Henderson was playing well in extra time. Um, I've read back people now saying that Henderson was the best player when he came on. I didn't see it. But a player like that is someone I would have kept on. The way Southgate was playing, he was playing like he he was going four pence. And if you're doing that, a captain level player, Champions League winner, Premier League winner, someone... Big game ready, John Henderson. I would have had on the pitch. Does the penalty line up odd to me? Like I said, I said to everyone I was with at the time, best penalty taker takes four for me always. That's when the first time something death is happening is going to happen. Best penalty player takes fourth. If you've got young players, you do one old, young, one young, one old, one young. I would not have let three young players. Two of them cold, one of them 19, all of them under 23, take a penalty three in a row. Because as soon as one of them missed, the energy on the other two is going to be much harder. For Saka, the pressure on the last one must have been honestly must have been indescribable. I can't imagine how stressful that was. But the thing is that all of that's irrelevant now. And we actually don't care about the Euros. I don't care about the Euros anymore because I will never look back on this tournament finally again. The abuse that happened after the game Has soured the entire tournament for me And I don't know I don't know why I let myself go on the internet After the game Because I knew it would annoy me And I knew IT things I didn't like But people are dying People are committing violence There's racism After, after three kids miss penalties And that just made me like I don't want to like football anymore I don't even like these times anymore There's a knife edge that these players have to live on knowing that if you play badly, your family's going to get abused in your hometown, like Alvaro Marato. Or You might get used as political pawns by politicians and journalists, like Rashford or Sancho or, B- or Saka. People are talking about taking the knee and Rashford feeding kids and Sancho putting up um, pictures in his hometown. And you're thinking, this is over people missing penalties. And I understand what people are trying to do when they say... Marcus Rashford fed the kids, and Sancho's doing this, and Saka's doing that. You shouldn't. That shouldn't be necessary. You shouldn't have to add a qualifier to that. I get it. It's not. It's not. You haven't. You're not doing it out of bad intent, but you shouldn't have to say, "Marcus Rashford fed the kids," so you shouldn't racially abuse him because he missed a penalty. You shouldn't have to say that. It should be, "Marcus Rashford missed a penalty." That's it. You shouldn't have to add the qualifier or the thing to protect him, as if he would have deserved that. If he hadn't fed the kids Or Sancho would have deserved that If he hadn't put pitches up You know what I'm saying Like The England team were great this tournament More power to them at the World Cup They got a good chance Because they got a young squad Who's going to progress further And players like Rashford Will be fully healthy And Kane might not be coming off Such a stressful season you hope But do the fans des- Do the England fans Deserve a good World Cup winning team Because after that performance Everything that they- they happened before the game and then all the abuse that happens after, do they deserve to win a World Cup? If the players had won, just think about this, play it through with me. If the players had won, what would have happened? Every player would have been knighted. Southgate would have been nice. They would have been paraded through the streets. They would have been the heroes. Everything, everyone would have loved them. But because they didn't win, racism is possible. Racism is inevitable. Violence is inevitable. People. Are, Ethnic minorities are telling each other on the internet Go home right now Because you're in danger That's what's happening after people are missing penalties in games If you're an ethnic minority English player Or actually any English player Why would you subject yourself to play for a team like that? Why would you want to be receiving the support from fans like that? If you're Bakayo Saka Why should you play for a team that will give you such a level of scrutiny that if you if you make one bad pass or have one bad performance you know you're going to get racially abused after a game if you're Harry Kane why would you captain a country that when all goes bad your players, your brothers, the people you look out for are going to be racially abused left, right and centre if you're Gareth Southgate why would you lead a team to a large world stage, a bigger one than the Euros Knowing that the young players in your care might not ever recover from the actions of the fan base and that people might die if you don't win. The England tournament run was wasn't too unlike the Dutch one that I just talked about. Which is probably what is definitely what made me think of this. But the difference is that the entire nation was behind the Dutch team. And it turned out that even though they lost, they remembered fondly. I don't know if anyone can remember this England team fondly because I'm not sure how you can think about the Euros And separate that from what happened after the game I can't separate the two Somehow, in a tournament that had Paul Pogba's passing range Go, out, go off the scale Pedri's world stage debut the, the feeling of Luke Shaw's goal in two minutes That's all gone Now what you're left with is the feeling of Being complicit and And sad and empty In this culture of poor performances or mistakes on the football pitch might lead to the loss of lives and racial abuse Makarsak is 19 years old he's younger than me Jaden Sancho would have been one school year older than me at school Marcus Rashford a couple I can't Im- I feel like because of our age because of our closeness I can slightly relate to them even though we have lived completely different lives can you imagine the pressure of having an entire country watching you do something And that if it goes wrong because of the actions of a fan base and people and the inherent racism in a place people might die after a game if you don't score this or if you don't make that pass or if you don't make that tackle someone might lose their life I can't I can't put I can't separate the two I can't put one in a box there and put one in a box on the other side and and my thought I don't really have that many collective thoughts I've got a hundred thousand things happening at once but it's been weighing on my mind ever since the game and I don't really know where I'm at with football right now now the Premier League starting in a couple of weeks and of course you're excited but from all that madness that happened after the Euros just something's sitting right with me right now and I feel like I, I almost feel like I need what you need is a break from football but that's not coming <laughs> but we all need a break and the, the racism in football thing will probably be its whole own episode one day, maybe like a, a 10 part. but as an unfully thought out idea, I'm not sure if I was one of those players, if I could play at the World Cup for a fan base that would do that after a, after an amazing tournament, would do that. don't want to end this episode on a bad note I had an, uh, had an amazing time doing all the research going back to, uh, please make sure you go back and watch Croy and watch the, the highlights from the 74 team I think you can still find the final on the internet it's, it's an amazing team Croy's talent Mickles is managing the, some of the players in that Dutch team it's a different level and I really want to thank you guys for listening and supporting the podcast all the well wishes all the advice it really makes me want to keep going so I appreciate that from everyone please follow all the socials and the podcast YouTube page they'll all be in the description the the link to the goal that I was talking about will be in the description as well make sure to mute it the music is so annoying and if you really want to hear me in pain I think next week's episode is going to be about Arsenal's fall from grace after the 05 FA Cup final win so make sure to tune into that one but bye for now see you guys next week really appreciate it Uh, tune in for next week's episode